The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, The Romantic Philosophers. Empiricism would continue on to the present day. It would become increasingly materialistic in French philosophy, culminating in the reductionism of Auguste Comte. 1798 to 1857, wherein all human experience is reduced to biology, chemistry, and ultimately to physics. Rationalism, too, continues to the present day, reaching its peak under George Hegel's Idealism of the Absolute. Hegel's dates are 1770 to 1831. Hegel held that all human activity is nothing more than the working of the universe as it slowly and inevitably progresses toward ultimate godhood. In both empiricism and rationalism, and materialism and idealism, the human, especially the individual human person, gets lost. Either in the eternal bumping of atoms or in the grand scheme of God-making, our thoughts and feelings are nothing of any importance Either way, we are just carbon molecules or the twitchings of eternity. Some philosophers were taken aback by this tendency, both before and after Comte and Hegel. They felt that, for human beings, it was our own day-to-day -day living that was the center of our search for the truth. Reason and the evidence of our senses were important, no doubt, but they mean nothing to us unless they touch our needs, our feelings, our emotions. Only then do they acquire meaning. This meaning is what the Romantic movement is all about. I will focus on several philosophers that I believe most influenced psychology. The first is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is often considered the father of Romanticism, and the last is Friedrich Nietzsche, who is sometimes considered the greatest romantic. Afterwards, we will look at the commonalities among these philosophers that let us talk of a romantic movement. Jean-Jacques Rousseau No history of psychology is complete without a look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He has influenced education to the present day, philosophy, such as of Kant and Schopenhauer, political theory, the French Revolution, Karl Marx, and he inspired the Romantic movement in philosophy, which in turn influenced all of these things and psychology once again. Plus, he's one of the most colorful characters we have, and, as an added bonus, he has left a particularly revealing autobiography in The Confessions. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born in Geneva, Switzerland in 1712 to the watchmaker Isaac Rousseau and his wife Suzanne Bernard Rousseau. Although a Calvinist, Jean-Jacques' father Isaac was also a bit unstable, and he left his wife and first son, later returned to Father Jean-Jacques, and then left again. His mother died one week after Jean-Jacques was born, and so he was raised by an aunt and uncle. 
They sent him off to a boarding school in the country, where, he says, he learned, quote, all the insignificant trash that has obtained the name of education, end quote. The experience did, however, serve as the start to his love affair with rural life. At 12 years old, Jean-Jacques returned to his aunt and uncle. There, apprenticed to a watchmaker, he developed two other personal qualities. The constant beatings of his master, as well as from school, led him to lying and idleness. And adolescence led him to develop a rather bizarre romantic streak— he would spend much of the rest of his life falling in love. At 16, Jean-Jacques Rousseau ran away from home with no money nor possessions. A priest led him to the Baroness Mademoiselle de Warrens, a 29-year-old beauty who apparently had a soft spot for losers and potential converts. Her influence led him to convert to Catholicism, although he was not yet ready to give up his exhibitionism nor his desire to be spanked by lovely ladies. He entered a seminary in 1729, but was promptly dismissed. He eventually developed an on-again, off-again physical relationship with the lovely Mademoiselle Warren. In the meantime, he walked all over the countryside, often for very long distances. He loved the woods, mountains, and nature itself. He served as an occasional tutor and music teacher, but spent most of his time reading Enlightenment authors. Voltaire's work turned him to a nature worship, quite congenial to his personality. In 1742, when Jean-Jacques Rousseau was 30 years old, he left for Paris. He quickly befriended the political writer Diderot, who managed to help him get a job as a secretary at the French embassy in Venice. He was dismissed because of his insolent nature. In 1746, Rousseau met and fell in love with Saurice Lavoisier, a simple-minded laundress and seamstress. Together they had four children, all of whom were sent to orphanages. Keep in mind that this was a common response to poverty in those days, i.e. from the time of the fall of Rome to World War II. He did feel considerable remorse about this later, but admitted that he would have made a really lousy father. And no one really doubts him on that. He worked as a secretary to various aristocrats and spent quite some time composing music. He even rewrote an operetta by Voltaire and wrote to him. A literary contest with a monetary prize caught his attention. And in 1750, he won with A Discourse on the Arts and Sciences, a powerful attack on civilization. This would be the first time that we get to see his ideas about the natural goodness of man. And although we think of Rousseau as an Enlightenment thinker, this thesis was actually anti-Enlightenment, anti-philosophy, anti-reason, anti-Voltaire, and even anti-printing press. The good life, Rousseau was saying, is the simple life of the peasants. This conception of back to nature involved, of course, a romantic notion of nature. And this stands in stark contrast to the nature of jungles and deserts. 1752 
was another active year for Rousseau. He wrote his comedy Narcissa, his operetta, Le Devin du Village, which was successfully presented to the king. Unfortunately, Rousseau's illness, he suffered from a variety of painful and humiliating bladder problems, kept him from meeting the king, and in doing so he also forfeited a pension. In 1753, another competition was announced. Rousseau's entry, A Discourse on the Origin and Basis of Inequality Among Men, won this competition and was published two years later. In this discourse, he accepted the biological inequities of human beings, but argued that there were no natural bases for any other inequities, economic, political, social, or moral. These, he said, were basically due to the existence of private property and the need to defend it with force. Man is good, Rousseau argued, but society, which is little more than the reification of greed, corrupts us all. Rousseau admitted that it is no longer possible for us to leave civilized society now. It has, in fact, become a part of our nature. The best we can do is to lead simpler lives with fewer luxuries, with the simple morality of the Gospels to guide us. In his article on economics for the Encyclopedia, he suggested that it would help if we all had a graduated income tax, a tax on luxuries, but none on necessities, and a national free public education. In 1756, he moved with Therese and her elderly mother into the Hermitage, a cottage lent to him by Mademoiselle de Epinay. There he wrote a novel, or a romance, called Jules ou le Nevoir Héloïse, referring to the Héloïse of Héloïse and Abelard fame. It became, perhaps, the most famous novel of the 1700s. On the other side, he alienated his friends with unpleasant letters and his rudeness toward his benefactress, Mademoiselle d'Epinay. Even his oldest friend, Diderot, called him mad. In a huff, Rousseau left the hermitage. In 1762, Rousseau published both Emile and The Social Contract. The first line of The Social Contract is the most famous. Quote, Man is born free, and he is everywhere in chains. End quote. The purpose of the rest of the book was to describe a society that would instead preserve that freedom. The social contract is an admittedly mythological contract among individuals to surrender some of their freedoms to ensure a community which respects the individual and thereby preserves as much freedom as possible. This idea combined with Locke's thoughts on government, were to inspire the founding fathers of the new United States. It should be noted, however, that at the end of the book, Rousseau does prescribe death as the punishment for anyone who, by their actions, 
shows that they do not hold the common values of the community. The French Revolution would show more clearly than the American Revolution what a double-edged sword a philosophy such as Rousseau's can be. The book Emile was far more sedate. Emile is a treatise on child-rearing, from the man who sent four of his children to orphanages. It turns out, though, that he had some pretty good advice. He condemned all forms of education that use force. Instead, he promoted education that nurtured the natural unfolding of a child's potential. This in a time when it was thought that if you didn't beat your children regularly with a good-sized stick, they would grow up to be spoiled. And nature, Rousseau said, is to be the child's primary teacher, with freedom to explore the major teaching method. Basically, Rousseau says, the child learns by gradual adaptation to necessities and by imitation of those around him. Education should primarily be moral until the child is around the age of 12, when intellectual education begins. Religious education should be held off until the child is 18. This way, the child can develop reasonable religious beliefs, rather than an unthinking acceptance of mythology, supernaturalism, and miracles. The book is beautifully written, but many would say that Emile is almost naively idealistic. However, this book would be a great influence in Europe and later on in the United States. Maria Montessori in Italy, for example, based many of her ideas on Rousseau, as did John Dewey in the United States. What we now call progressive education and learning by doing basically came from Emile. The great philosophers of his time laughed at Rousseau, but the clergy was outraged. Rousseau's friends warned him and encouraged him to flee. And in 1762, the French Parliament ordered all copies of Emile confiscated and burned. Rousseau, for his part, fled to Switzerland, only to have his books burned in Calvinist Geneva as well. He begged Frederick the Great for asylum in Neufchatel. There he lived more eccentric than ever. Yet he was the idol of women everywhere, and his publishers begged him for more. He gave them more, primarily in the form of essays or letters to his critics. But the local ministers in Neufchatel were also upset about his writings, and a local sermon led to an attack on Rousseau's house. He and Thalys moved again, to a lone cottage on a tiny island in a lake in Switzerland. But he was again ordered to leave, which he did, first to Strasbourg and then to England, at the invitation of David Hume in 1766. At first, in London, Rousseau was the talk of the town and everyone wanted to meet him. But he tired of this attention quickly, and he asked Hume to find him a place in the country. There, Rousseau, Thalys, and their dog Sultan put quite a strain on their host's hospitality. 
Rousseau began to read critical articles in the British press. Already rather paranoid, Rousseau responded to them as if they were a conspiracy against him, and even accused Hume of being part of it. He and Thalys escaped from England back to France. Although technically still in danger of arrest in France, he nevertheless enjoyed the reception his fans gave him. But, fearing for his life, he fled into the countryside to wander anonymously. In 1768, he finally married his Thalys. She begged him to go back to Paris. And so they did, although living under pseudonyms. There in Paris, he copied music for a living, and finally finished, in 1770, his autobiography. Rousseau continued to write some of his most beautiful work, as well as some of his most paranoid, until 1778. He had moved into a cottage offered him by the Marquis de Jardin, where he happily studied the local flora. While there, he suffered a stroke. Faris tried to move him into his bed, but he fell again and cut his head. By the time the Marquis arrived, Rousseau was dead. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was buried on the estate, and his grave became a pilgrimage site. He was later moved to the Pantheon in Paris, and laid to rest not far from, of all people, Voltaire. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe We do not have to visit a madhouse to find disordered minds. Our planet is the mental institution of the universe. Wolfgang van Goethe was born in 1749 in Frankfurt am Main in Germany. The oldest of six children, although only he and his sister survived into adulthood. His father, Johann Kasper Goethe, was a well-to-do lawyer and an amateur scholar, but a failure in politics, possessing an unpleasant disposition. His mother, Katharina Elizabeth Textor, was considerably more pleasant, and was the daughter of the Burgermeister, or the mayor, of Frankfurt. Young Goethe was a handsome and talented youth. He learned languages easily, and was interested in music and art. He entered the University of Leipzig to study law, but a disappointment in love led him to sickness and depression, and so he left the school. In 1771, however, he received his law degree from the University of Strasbourg. His early reading of Pierre Bayle's dictionary led him to renounce his Christianity as a teenager and to become an atheist. He later mellowed a bit and accepted a, a pantheism, modeled after that of Spinoza's. In 1774, he wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther, a tragic love story that, although panned by critics, was wildly successful, especially among young romantic intellectuals. Unfortunately, 
The book concludes with a suicide that was imitated by a number of Goethe's young lovesick readers. Like many of his works, this story emphasized the tension between the nature of the individual and the restrictions of society. The following year, Goethe was invited to join the Duke of Saxony-Weimar at court. At first, Goethe was just an ornament there. But later, he performed various real political duties, including inspections of mines and the establishment of weather observatories. In 1782, Goethe was inducted into the nobility, which permitted him to add Vaughn to his name. Because of his fame and status in Weimar, he met and befriended a number of young poets, including Schiller and Herder. In his teens, Goethe was given to falling in love, yet apparently unable to commit himself to one woman or to the institution of marriage. His longest and most intense relationship began around 1775, with Charlotte von Schart, a married woman who had seven children, although only four of them survived. He would write long romantic letters to her for most of the rest of his life. He did eventually set up a household with a young working-class girl named Christiane Vulpius. She bore him a child on Christmas Day in 1789. In 1801, Goethe became quite ill, and his recovery took many years. Toward the end of his illness, Napoleon defeated the Prussians at Jena and marched into Weimar. His troops attempted to take over Goethe's house, and Christiane physically protected him. He finally married her. Goethe was a strong admirer of Napoleon, and visited Napoleon in 1808 at the Emperor's invitation. Goethe also visited Beethoven in 1812. Goethe's greatest work is his two-part play, Faust. Although he began writing it in 1773, it would not be finished until 1831. The first part, however, could stand alone and it was completed in 1808. Its theme was human freedom and the power of passion, which Faust discovers after he wagers his soul in a devil's bargain with Mephistopheles. Now here's an interesting aside. Goethe's character, Dr. Faust, creates an artificial man in his laboratory. This influenced a certain Mary Shelley, the author of the book Frankenstein, which was perhaps the first science fiction novel. She even places her story in a 13th century castle, which she had seen that belonged to the old and colorful German family Frankenstein, a castle Goethe was quite familiar with. But back to our story. In addition to his poetry, novels, and plays, Goethe spent considerable time on science, he studied medicine, anatomy, physics, chemistry, botany, and meteorology. In 1792, he completed the two-part Contributions to Optics, and in 1810, the three-part On the Theory of Colors. 
He truly believed that it was with these works that he would have his greatest contribution. Instead, few scientists approved of them, and they were to make little serious impact on the field. His work would make quite an impression on various artists, though, including Turner, Klee, and Kandinsky. His approach was really more phenomenological than experimental, and his work reflected more on the subjective experiences of color and light than on their physics. Goethe also wrote a book called The Metamorphosis of Plants, in which he suggested that all plants are just variations on a primitive plant that he called the Urpflanze. He coined the term morphology along the way, and showed the relationship of human beings to animals with his discovery of the human intermaxillary bone, which is located just above your upper teeth, exactly where it is in lower animals. His wife Christiane died in 1816. His lifelong love Charlotte died in 1827. The Duke died the following year. And his last remaining child died in 1830. Suffering from sickness and depression, Goethe himself finally died March 22, 1832, one year after finishing the second half of his masterpiece, Faust. Arthur Schopenhauer Arthur Schopenhauer was born February 22nd 1788, in Danzig, Prussia, which is now Gdansk in Poland. His father was a successful businessman and his mother a novelist. Young Arthur was moved around Europe quite a bit, which allowed him to become fluent in several languages and to develop a deep love of nature. In 1805, Schopenhauer's father died, and Schopenhauer himself tried a business career, he lived with his mother for a while in Weimar, and she introduced him to Goethe. He went on then to study medicine at the University of Göttingen and philosophy at the University of Berlin, and ultimately received his doctorate from the University of Jena in 1813. Later, he worked with Goethe on Goethe's studies on color. In 1819, Schopenhauer published his greatest work, The World as Will and Idea. To Schopenhauer, the phenomenal world is basically an illusion. The true reality, Kant's thing in itself, he said, refers to will. Will, perhaps an odd term for us to use today, is more like the Tao in Chinese philosophy. It is out of the will that everything derives, but it has more the qualities of a force and pushes or drives what we perceive as the phenomenal world. Will is, you could say, the inner nature of all things. So if you want to understand something's or someone's inner nature, you need to look only within yourself. So the will also drives us through our instincts. And this concept would influence a young man named Sigmund Freud, 
one generation later. This idea may seem familiar as well in its presentation as The Force by filmmaker George Lucas in his great Star Wars epic. Schopenhauer, profoundly influenced by his reading of Buddhist literature, saw life as essentially painful. We are forced by our natures, our instincts, to live, to breed, to suffer, and to die. Schopenhauer is often described as the great pessimist. Quote, For the world is hell, and men are on one hand the tormented souls, and on the other the devils in it. If you imagine the sum total of distress, pain, and suffering of every kind which the sun shines upon in its course, you will have to admit it would have been much better if the sun had been able to call up the phenomenon of life as little on the earth as on the moon. To our amazement, we suddenly exist, after having for countless millennia not existed. In a short while, we will again not exist, also for countless millennia. That cannot be right, says the heart. End quote. The question, of course, is how does one get past the suffering? One way, Schopenhauer recommends, is aesthetic salvation, seeing the beauty in something or someone. When we do this, we are actually looking at the universal or essence behind the scene, which moves us in turn toward the universal subject within ourselves. This quiets the will that forces us in the phenomenal world. Schopenhauer believed that music was the purest art, one step from the will. A second way to transcend suffering is through ethical salvation, compassion. Here, too, it is the recognition of self in others, especially others who are suffering and the recognition of others in self as we view their experiences and their suffering. All of this leads to a quieting of the will and an understanding of our common connection as human beings. But these are only partial answers. The full life requires religious salvation, asceticism, the direct stilling of all desires by a life of self-denial and meditation. Without the will, only nothingness remains, which is nirvana. Schopenhauer lived many years of his life a bitter and reclusive man, unable to deal with his lack of success in life. He began publishing his works again in 1836, and intellectuals all over Europe began to develop an interest in him. Sadly, however, Schopenhauer developed heart problems, and on September 21, 1860, he died. After his death, he would powerfully influence such notables as the composer Richard Wagner, Friedrich Nietzsche, Thomas Mann, and many other writers. Music 